Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Christopher Bandini, one of the new co-hosts of New Books in Psychoanalysis, and I'm here today with Dr. Sophia Richmond. Dr. Richmond is a psychologist and psychoanalyst licensed in New York and in New Jersey who has been practicing for over 40 years. She holds a PhD from NYU and a diploma in psychoanalysis from the American Board of Professional Psychology. In addition to her private practice, Dr. Richmond is a supervisor at the New York University Postdoctoral Program in Psychotherapy and Psychoanalysis, where she completed her analytic training in 1975. A training and supervising analyst at the Center for Psychotherapy and Psychoanalysis of New Jersey and a faculty member of the Stephen Mitchell Center for Relational Studies. Dr. Richmond has authored a number of journal articles and chapters in edited books on the subject of catastrophic trauma and autobiographical writing. She is the author of a book titled A Wolf in the Attic, The Legacy of a Hidden Child of the Holocaust, which is Rutledge in 2002. She's the winner of the 2003 Award for Scholarship from the Jewish Women's Caucus of the Association for Women in Psychology. She's also a painter with several solo exhibitions behind her, as well as numerous group shows. And we're here to talk to her today about her book, Mended by the Muse, Creative Transformations of Trauma. So, uh, Dr. Richmond, the way we usually start is to ask what led you to write this book. Uh, well, uh, this book uh, was very much tied in with uh, my personal experience with both trauma and cre- with creativity. The book is about trauma and creativity, and uh, uh, I, uh, I was inspired by uh, childhood experiences uh, with trauma. Uh, I was born into the Holocaust, and... Um, I survived in hiding. Uh, this is in Poland. Mm. And uh, so during my earliest years, during my toddler years, I was, I was in hiding. And um, the, uh, the early trauma um, was, um, for many years, it sort of went underground. I mean, I was always aware of what I had lived through, but uh, I... Uh, uh, eventually, through analysis, um, I came to see um, its impact on me. And creativity was always uh, an outlet for me. Uh, one of the uh, early early experiences that I had uh, that was a dramatic experience was um, during that time, my father was also hidden. I was hidden in plain sight with my mother so that we, we passed as uh, Catholics. So we were out in the open. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mother had false uh, identity papers, and she, she played the role of a, of a Christian woman with a child. In the meantime, my father had been in a concentration camp, and uh, he escaped. And when he escaped, uh, we were hiding him in our attic, and I was told that... Um, 
there was uh, there was danger in the attic. There was a wolf in the attic, which is uh, you know you mentioned my first book, my memoir. Yes. Um, <clears throat> and that was my title, a Wolf in the Attic. And uh, I had to keep the secret of his existence from the rest of the world. So um, this was, uh, I've come to see that uh, this was really one of my early traumas, uh, the the fear of speaking, uh, the danger of speaking. I could have given away uh, his presence, and I had to lie about him. So it was it was terrifying, and it had an impact on my ability to speak. In fact, my speaking with you today mm-hmm. is uh, it's highly anxious uh, for me. Uh, speaking has always been anxiety provoking, and particularly public speaking, but not necessarily just public speaking. Uh, there's a sense of having to be very careful about what I say. But writing uh, was a whole different story. Um, I feel much safer when I write and um, and painting also. So I was I was drawn to the creative art. So to answer your question in the mm-hmm. long way round, what inspired me to write this book was my life. Yes, and uh, and in the book you're very forthcoming, and in, in just as you have been just now in 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 how your your personal journey has influenced your work and. Uh, and there's a, a, a lot of a talk in the book about self-disclosure. Yes, yes, there is. While writing a memoir, which I did about uh, 12 years ago, that I started it about, I guess, 14 years ago, uh, was uh, something that, uh, uh, you know, really brought me out there in, in the world. And uh, I was trained back uh, in the days when uh, self-disclosure was a very complicated uh and uh, pretty much, uh, you know, uh, not not accepted. Uh, you know, the tide has changed, and there's a lot more openness uh, among analysts. But uh, so I, self-disclosure became something that was I had to give a lot of thought to, both before publishing the book and uh, and since. So I yes, I have I have written on that subject as well. It's interesting. There has been some recent um, uh, writing or, or uh, people coming uh, towards the relational school saying that uh, that the self-disclosure of the analyst is, um, uh, is is based on their anxiety to not be able to contain or to sit with the silence, which I don't agree with. But it's kind of interesting that it's coming in a sense. It's almost coming full circle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, you know. I'm not sure what what you mean by full circle. Um, uh, Are you talking about the importance of still uh, being able to maintain the silence when it's necessary and uh, that self-disclosure can actually uh, uh, interfere with that? Is that what you're saying? Right. I think of some people coming maybe more from a one-person psychology thinking that it's it's, – of, of being careful about the self-disclosure coming from a, from the from the therapist's anxiety, rather than yes, yes. But you know, I, I think that uh, you know these these uh, old ideas uh, sort of coexist along with uh, some of the newer ones. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, 
you know, it's, it's not surprising that uh, uh, you, you hear you hear both um, both sides of it. Mm-hmm. Can you speak a little about um, it, about how you describe in the book the uh, the relational viewpoints of trauma as a, as as contrasted with maybe more of the traditional views? Um, well, I'm particularly interested in uh, applying some of the more uh, some of the newer uh, the relational ideas uh, to a whole different area of uh, of experience uh, to creativity. Uh, the um, uh, the the relational perspective on trauma, of course, takes into consideration the uh, the uh, the effects of uh, early experience and attachment and uh, the impact of that on uh, on trauma. Um, but I, I think that uh, I, I, my, my book is more focused on bringing certain relational ideas uh, like the concept of dissociation and witnessing into the uh, self-expressive, into the artistic realm. Uh, yes, I mean, the, the, uh, there's such great work in the book on um, some interviews that you've done with uh, with artists and and this this idea of witnessing and kind of witnessing through art, if I'm if I'm reading it correctly, uh, as a way of kind of dealing with trauma. Uh, yes, I, I, I feel that witnessing is is very important uh, in general. I think uh, the need for recognition and to be known is a powerful universal need. But I think in the case of trauma, uh, it's even more than imperative. I think that um, uh, with trauma, there's a lot more conflict about it in terms of both wanting to um, uh, disclose what has happened uh, and at the same time a sort of internal injunction against revealing what has happened, uh, connected up with a sense of shame. So uh, there is a lot more conflict about it. Uh, that conflict is also universal, according to, you know, Winnicott uh, likes to speak about that concept of both, uh, you know, wanting uh, to be found and, and uh, uh, the fear of being uh, found. But um, I think it's even stronger with trauma survivors. Yes. Um, and what what do you think traditionally the role of creativity or the place of creativity has been in analytic work over the years? And and how? And I think you're you're speaking about one way that it has shifted. But but has it always been, say, in the consulting room? Has it always been part of uh, of psychoanalysis? Uh, sort of uh, 
became like a substitute for something. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, one of the things I do in the book is I, I trace kind of theoretical uh, theoretical views and how they have changed over the years uh, from you know Freud's uh, emphasis on uh, the sublimation, which was um, uh, which was a the, sort of the main uh, way of thinking about creativity in the uh, in the consulting room and outside of the consulting room. Um, but uh, in, in later years, um, I traced through the, uh, the interpersonal and uh, humanistic and uh, existential views about creativity because for for a verse theorist, creativity was um, uh, an essential part of life. It was uh, it is, uh, an example of the human capacity for growth mm-hmm. uh, rather than a way of compensating for something that is lacking, which was the you know earlier views of sublimation as reparation. With them, there was more... Um, uh, Creativity as self-actualization. So, uh, was that your question? I just want to make sure it's responding to the way you asked that question about the changes. And, yes. The- yeah, I think I think that's a, that's a key point about uh, kind of uh, grappling with this idea of what traditionally has been sublimation, and and mm-hmm. now kind of this idea of uh, maybe a different idea, and, and maybe even something about maybe analytically about maybe co-constructing a creative act. Uh, yes, yes. Well, that's certainly a more recent uh, concept, and uh, the uh, uh, I don't write that much about uh, co-construction and creativity because what I focus on uh, is uh, creativity even outside of the consulting room. Uh, while I have a number of cases in the book where I discuss both the integration of the um, uh, the, the artistic uh, form of self-expression into into the sessions, bringing it into the sessions and making it a part of the therapy, much of what I write about is uh, the way that people use the creative process. Uh, outside of the consulting room, mm-hmm. and uh, people who might not go into uh, therapy at all uh, would be able to make use of it. Yes, yeah, so it's it's so creativity on its own can be a therapeutic process. I guess is is kind of the the gist of it. Yes, that's definitely what I what I uh, believe. Yeah. yeah, I I know as a. Um, uh, you know, one thing that that's come up for me is uh, is creativity almost as a developmental process. Like getting a history of one's creativity has been very kind of important, and I think it's often a neglected area. Um, what someone's early experience with music and art have been, um, yeah. you know, yeah. and and it's it often reveals a lot of information. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, I haven't thought of it as part of uh, just a kind of an assessment. Uh, it usually will come into the sessions, and uh, I, I don't use, uh, you know, creative uh, uh, forms of expression uh, 
uh, as uh, a technique or anything like that, you know, the way an art therapist might, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it sort of, uh, it, it evolves from uh, the, uh, the, the work that I'm doing with somebody. And I think I probably get a certain gleam in my eye when somebody mentions that, oh, they're writing or they're journaling or um, they're doing sketches. or uh, and, and I think that that sort of encourages the person to really talk more, and I will encourage them to talk more about something like that. So I think that um, I have a way of bringing it in without having it as part of a, an assessment tool. It's just an initial, uh, but, but I think you're quite right because I think many people, um, will do those, uh, creative things and not, not even think about, uh, that was creative. By the way, I probably should say something about, um, the way that I define, uh, uh, creativity and the way that I define trauma, which because, uh, I think that, you know, I take a specific uh, approach. I, you know, when I talk about creativity, I'm not, I'm not necessarily talking about, you know, uh, a great talent or um, a contribution to society. I'm, I'm talking about, um, it's a broad definition of a potential in, in all of us, and I use the term artist loosely uh, without judging. Uh, regarding the quality of the product. You know, it's like we, we some have defined it as uh, little C versus big C. The little C is like tending to one's garden uh, or, uh, or making uh, wonderful meals without a recipe or <laughs> being creative with a recipe. And big C is like writing a symphony. So I, I'm really interested in a broad definition. And, and my definition of trauma, by the way, is also on a continuum uh, from, uh, from adversity and loss, uh, which are universal, uh, to catastrophic trauma, such as the Holocaust. Yes, I mean, I think this is one of those, it's another topic that seems to come up from time to time about um, what constitutes trauma, as if there has to be a kind of a, a quantitative judgment or such about about what trauma is, and that there is yes. this continuum. Yes, it's definitely. I definitely see it on a continuum. And and can you say something about the uh, the relationship between trauma and dissociation? Uh, well, uh, we know that one of the uh, common defenses uh, in um, uh, in trauma is dissociation. Um, I I know it from the inside out. Uh, I think you know. Uh, I turned to that to dissociation uh, before I understood you know what what that was. I mean, I I it, for example, I experienced a tremendous uh, sense of numbness. Um, it's not like I didn't remember what had happened to me, um, even though, you know, my memories were few because I was very young uh, during the, the war. But um, it was the feelings were disconnected from the actual event. So if, if I talked about my experiences, uh, it, it was a little bit like a robot, 
you know, mm-hmm. it talks about the facts, uh, but the emotions seem to be missing. And then in time, emotions sort of flooded. And so I would, I would say a word and suddenly I would start to tear and, um, it was that kind of disconnect. So I know about trauma and dissociation. Um, but in, in the book, I use the concept of dissociation, uh, in relation to, uh, what happens in the, uh, in the artistic process, in the, in the creative process. And that, uh, I think is, uh, relatively unique. Uh, I like to think that's my contribution um, and my my own view of the creative process, uh, which is uh, different from the way that, you know, I mean, I, I have to say there have been so many theories about creativity, uh-huh. um, but I, I feel that maybe the emphasis that I place on it is, uh, is different. You know, you mentioned witnessing before, um, but that's that's one of the aspects. But the other is dissociation, and uh, what, I, what I mean by that is that um, when uh, the artist, you know, I have noticed, both uh, from personal experience and also from interviews with artists, and I've been around artists uh, for much of my life, and so... Um, you know, I went to a special high school, and went to high school in music and art, and I was an art major, and there was a time I thought I, uh, that would be my career, uh, but I shifted gears. Um, so, um, anyway, I noticed that when artists are deeply immersed in the creative process, uh, they surrender to it, as many dance would say. They enter a kind of altered state of awareness, and in that state, they uh, almost forget where they are, forget to eat, lose lose track of time, uh, and become become so absorbed uh, to be in another state. Chiksent uh, Mihali, by the way, wrote yes. a lovely. Um, a lovely endorsement for my book. Uh, he wrote about the concept of flow. Well, mm-hmm. this is very much like flow. I think flow is probably another word for uh, that uh, that altered state, that what I call dissociation. And in that state, also uh, judgment is is put on hold. So um, there isn't, uh, you know. A, a, a kind of evaluation that will sometimes be the block blocking factor when someone is is uh, having uh, creative uh, blocks. Yes. And, and imagination is heightened. I'm also very familiar with that state because uh, about 35 years ago, I trained in hypnosis mm-hmm. um, at Columbia, and I use it as an adjunct. Uh, through the years, I've used it as an adjunct. And, um, I know that that hypnotic state, that trance state, is very similar to what, uh, the artist experiences. And so, and I think that that's one of the, you know, um, the creative process is not just, um, uh, not just inspiration, 
uh, it takes more than inspiration, but this is the inspiration aspect of it. Yes. What What might you see, or what changes do you think you might see as a person uh, progresses in treatment, or comes in with dissociative, uh, comes in a dissociative state, or comes in with a history of trauma, and kind of and moves maybe towards more creativity? How would you How would you see that progress? Um. Well, there, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking that the creative individual really, uh, basically just, uh, may need a little encouragement. Mm -hmm. But, you know, someone who is, you know, dissociation happens on a continuum also. Mm -hmm. And I know that from my, uh, hypnosis training where uh, some people are very responsive uh, to, that, to that state, and others are not. And so, but, but people who are, um, who've been traumatized and uh, uh, have a tendency towards dissociation, basically have a tendency towards dissociation and can make use of that capacity, uh, in, um, in the creative process. So, but all that they really, you know, in terms of progression you're talking about, I think that, uh, with a little encouragement, uh, they can, they can, um, you know, develop, uh, whatever, uh, propensity or talent, and by talent I don't mean necessarily a talent in the arts. But the talent for uh, dissociation hmm. that could be developed also. Well, I do think of uh, of Sullivan when Sullivan would talk about problems in living and how maybe there was something about making people more creative in living. Again, not to make become an artist with a capital C, but to yes. uh, kind of uh, just to have a, 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 a wider repertoire in a sense yes, of living. Yes. Well, of course, you know, people like Otto Rank who I think uh, have really uh, uh, not been recognized sufficiently, um, were writing about this uh, very early on, around the time of uh, Freud. Uh, you know, Rank was writing about about the artist and about the, uh, the, the capacity that all human beings have in uh, being creative. And um, he was recognizing the importance of that, mm. as were the existentialists yes. recognizing that. Mm. So, uh, yeah, I think that uh, it is definitely something that uh, is, uh, is wonderful. And as, as a person is, is freed up, um, uh, they, can, uh, they can turn to you know, whatever form of self-expression is, uh, is natural to them. Yeah, I think it's often, for me, one of the most striking uh, uh, aspects of our work when someone actually kind of has, it becomes creative in some way, and the thing, whether it's cooking or, uh, or gardening or something, or just a kind of a change in flexibility, and it's often a, a very uh, profound shift in, in treatment. Yes, yes. Uh, it can happen in treatment, or happen outside of treatment, but I think that that freedom, uh, that, uh, you know, greater ability to express uh, the kind of the inner state 
uh, is certainly encouraged through, uh, through a good therapy. Uh, there's also uh, some some writing in the book about neuroscience and some of the new neurological uh, findings and how they relate to creativity and, and art. Yes, uh, you know, neuroscience is not uh, it, it, it's not a great uh, interest of mine, mm-hmm. but I I was particularly uh, fascinated by uh, reading some of the work by someone by the name of Arnie. Dietrich, yes. who's a neuropsychologist, and his work was, uh, he was very interested in creativity, he was very interested in flow, and um, in, in some of the um, uh, states that one enters when uh, one is in, doing exercise, um, and what he and other neuroscientists have found is that there are actually brain changes. Um, where the frontal lobes, uh, during the creative process or during the slow process, uh, the, the brain changes are that the frontal lobes are temporarily on hold and thinking it, it becomes more meandering and less directed and more creative. And they have called this the transient hypofrontality hypothesis. (laughs) And that means that the transient is that this is temporary, and the hypofrontality is that the the frontal lobes are, um, they're like on hold, um, and and it is, I think it's important to remember, it's a hypothesis. So much of what we're learning in neuroscience is hypotheses. I think sometimes people are very tempted to... um, to see you know, people who are looking for concrete facts and sure. eager to <laughs> to uh, you know to find these um, uh, solutions to our problems, but you know these are hypotheses for the most part. But it's it's a it's a fascinating uh, thing, and there are uh, you know a, a lot of people who are interested in the creative process uh, from a neuroscience perspective as well. Yeah. Uh, also, I, I think there's so much in the book that's so it's it's actually quite a, a wide ranging uh, book in many ways, and and I, I think you address something that that often doesn't get addressed so much, which is really uh, the life stages and creativity through uh, through life, right? That, yes, yes. Uh, I, I I do feel good about that, and I I. Uh, uh, my last chapter really is about um, aging and uh, and creativity and how uh, you know confronting one's death uh, is uh, a stimulus to um, uh, I mean it's it, it it can be an experience of trauma basically it's, it's another kind of trauma that lasts that one experiences all around and the prospect of death uh, uh, coming closer. Uh, and I think that uh, for many there's um, uh, a desire for uh, generativity uh, and to even, you know, Rock talked about the immortality, the need for immortality as yes. being very basic to the uh, creative arts, and you, you can create something that lives on after you. 
So yeah, I I, uh, I do believe you know through through one's life, and then in that chapter also, by the way, while I'm thinking of it, I'll mention it. Uh, I also talk about uh, illness, uh, severe chronic illness, which uh, you know has some similarities because it also uh, brings one in a confrontation with death as well, and it certainly is a traumatic experience to be diagnosed with uh, severe. Uh, yeah, it, it it does call to mind, uh, you know, certainly Erickson's work as, as well. Yes, yes. And, and Maslow, I think it really it touches on kind of this idea of kind of what it means, the hierarchy of needs, and 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 what it means to be, like you mentioned, the generativity of later life. Yes, yes, very much. The other person who had written about this um, uh, quite a bit is Jung. Mm-hmm. And uh, he himself was an example of, uh, you know, someone who, uh, into his later years, was, uh, you know, continued to be immensely creative. Um, so, yeah, I, I write about him. In fact, I devote a chapter to him because, I think, you know, his, his life is uh, such a wonderful example of uh, the theme that, uh, you know, I, I write about. Yes, and I think he's really, you know, many people have not, uh, he's not always uh, talked about and certainly in relational circles as much, but you do a wonderful job on taking memories, dreams, and reflections and kind of moving forward with that and, uh, yes, and using yes. him as an well, example. That was, that was his, uh, his memoir, which, uh, yeah, someone wrote with him, but then as he was getting closer uh, to his death, uh, he was... He actually um, sort of almost took over the process, and he—I think he died in '61, and the book was published in '62, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1961 and 1962, so he, uh, you know, he was so engaged in that process of creating. And I—I—I I, I, I talk about memoirs. I, I talk a lot about memoirs. Yes. Also about Young's Red Book, which is also a very interesting chapter, which just I guess came out in a new edition recently, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, but it's also quite quite an interesting take on 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 that on that uh, work by Young. Yes, yes, he has such beautiful illustrations in there, amazing work, uh, and uh, yeah, he was he was an artist. He was a painter. He's an artist. And, um, and, you know, that state that I talked about that the artist goes into, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he, he really describes that process, uh, you know, for himself. And, uh, and he encouraged, he actually encouraged patients to do something very similar. It's interesting. There's some uh, some talk in the book about Freud and, uh, and also Freud's... Uh, uh, what Freud felt about art, and there was certain uh, he liked certain forms of art, but he wasn't really a big music fan. Uh, right, right. Uh, I guess he wasn't. Uh, but in his inner circle, I think I don't remember his name, but there was uh, perhaps you, you know it from your experience in music that mm-hmm. uh, there was one, one of the uh, 
the group, I think, was an expert on music and, and did write about music. But Freud himself, no, didn't seem to be. Uh, and also, I guess that from the title, right? It's the, you also write about the muse and what's the, the and the, the purpose of the place of the muse. Yes, yes. Um, well, for me, the muse is a very important concept uh, for for my book because I see the muse really as a, a kind of relational uh, presence uh, in what otherwise would be a solitary activity of of uh, making art. And I see it as an embodied image of another uh, who serves a, a witnessing function and a, an inspiring function for the artist. Yes, it's and such an. Sometimes we, we refer to muse, and I do in my in my dedication to my husband and my daughter as muses. Um, but I think um, it's also an, an imaginary other who, who exists in that. Uh, intermediate area of experience uh, that Winnicott has so beautifully written about that, that uh, potential space between psychic reality and the outside world. And that's the way I conceptualize news. Yeah, I think it's a wonderful formulation on, on inspiration and creativity to think of the muse in a relational aspect, uh, not yeah. just something that kind of visits you or kind of hits you like lightning, but rather that you have a relationship with it. And if you want to speak maybe more about how art can come out of, um, you know, your chapters on genocide and on kind of really severe trauma, and um, you spoke a little bit about it earlier, but maybe if you'd like to elaborate a little bit on, on people who create art out of that experience. Yes. Uh, well, you know, I have a, I have a lot of strong feelings as I was writing that chapter. Uh, I found myself really engaged in it, and it really developed uh, a very strong feeling. Uh, I think that um, the, the way that survivors are understood for the most part is really, uh, survivors are not really understood, I feel. Uh, the, the theories about survivors um, uh, uh, kind of counter to what I'm writing about because I'm writing about art um, coming from a survivor of massive psychic trauma is a form of resilience. Not not just massive psychic trauma. I think art, is, art in the context in which I'm using it is a form of resilience. And uh, for the most there's a very pathological um, lens through which people see survivors. A lot of that is uh, the theories that have been um, repeated over and over again about uh, uh, what happens to survivors is that uh, the primary empathic bond with a good internalized object is lost, and the, the internal representation of the relationship between self and other is destroyed. And as a result of that, uh, 
there's a, a massive capacity to reflect and a shutdown of processes of symbolization and integration and all of that does not make sense to me. Now, I'm a survivor, my mother was a survivor, my father was a survivor, their friends were survivors. I was surrounded by a community of survivors. And this concept makes no sense to me. Well, I think... And actually, you know... Mm-hmm. No, I was going to say that that really through the book, taking these concepts that maybe were patho- pathologized, even even the idea of, of going into a flow state may have been seen kind of pathologically earlier on, and and turning them into really um, positive place in that, and that it really hasn't been your experience that th- these are um, that people don't have resiliency, that they that it's irreparable, and I think that really comes across uh, very clearly in the book. I appreciate you saying that because uh, that feels very right to me. Uh, I've had difficulty with the kind of, you know, frequent generalizations about survivors. And uh, I feel that, you know, yes, of course, there's damage. Inevitably, there's damage. But there's also, uh, there's also hope and growth and, and repair and, uh, and I just, I, I, I see the, uh, a kind of, um, uh, it's almost like a two, uh, I, I don't know exactly how, uh, how to say that. It's like just a, a, a cardboard view of, uh, of what survivors are like. And, you know, even saying they're amazingly resilient and being surprised by the resilience. It's, it's problematic for me. Mm-hmm. Because why should we be surprised about resilience? Right. You know? So, it, you know, and I appreciate you saying that, that it's, it's kind of throughout the book. It's not just uh, that I talk about that in, in, that, uh, in that chapter about, uh, uh, you know, genocide. But it, it, is, it, it is my view on life. Um, I, I think people exist in, uh, in multiple states. Uh, to me, the concept, you know, the relational concept of multiple states of self makes perfect sense. And, you know, I, I could see, I could see my, my parents, my, you know, my first, the, the, the first people, uh, my, the objects in my life who, who both could be mourning and, and despairing and, and, could also, you know, laugh and, and, and uh, uh, with abandon. My mother could do that, and um, and my father. Um, he, you know, he turned to. He wrote a memoir, and he he painted, and those brought him so much satisfaction and pleasure. So, uh, you know, that's uh, that that. Uh, the feeling that I've had, uh, and um, it, it, uh, it grows <laughs> as, I, as I get older. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the the, the idea of self states, and and as a new way of kind of, of formulating what happens in trauma, what happens in, survi- in in survivors, and and how it moves away from maybe some of the former conceptualizations, and how and how, what a useful concept it is. Yes. It, 
So the, the book is lovely. There's um, wonderful pictures in it. And I just wanted to comment too on the on the cover, which which uh, was by uh, David Newman, who I also know, uh, and it's a, it's just a, just wonderful. And he has his own uh, story of uh, of surviving that you mentioned in the book as well. One thing I was thinking about in my work when I was reading your book was uh, I often work with with young people who are becoming artists who are going out and and artistically stuck or struggling with uh, with art and, and with making art and kind of uh, maybe as a career choice as a place to go. I was wondering if you had anything to add about about that. I just was something that was of interest of, of mine. Uh, in terms of how to uh, encourage them, maybe to. What, what would Encourage or kind of to um, to deal with the struggles that they that they work with as they uh, kind of make choices and, and and kind of have a maybe creativity that's been unrealized so far. Um, it was just something that mm-hmm. that seems to come up um, amongst a lot of young people, especially moving to New York. Uh, I see it often. Yes, yes. Well, well, it is a big struggle, and uh, uh, you know. I didn't go into painting, <laughs> uh, because one also has to be practical and, uh, and make a living. And I think many of these young people uh, are faced with that kind of choice. Um, but I think that uh, what I would say is one can always uh, do the art. And uh, I think that uh, one can always do make a living at it, which is what these young people are probably struggling with, but it can be very gratifying. One of the uh, interesting things that I think that happens as you age, uh, of course, telling the young people that <laughs> is, uh, is probably not, uh, not relevant because it's hard for them to see what, what that will be like in time, but people do return uh, as I do the arts. After 35 years of being away uh, from painting, I, uh, I I came back to it, and uh, and then it, it, it just it felt wonderful. So that you know, for for um, somebody who is drawn to the arts, it 
it's a, a wonderful thing to have, and, and one always has it. Uh, you know, the uh, the talent doesn't go away, or the uh, the desire for it. Uh, you know, if it's strong, it it, it survives a lot. And uh, in fact, the woman that I uh, I interviewed uh, for a while, you know, went into social work, and uh, and then returned to art. It's um. It's something that can be with you your entire life. Well, as someone who has a guitar under his couch in his office, I can attest to that. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, well, well we're, end, we're coming up to the end of our 50-minute hour, so I just wanted to ask you if there's anything that I've left out or anything else you'd like to say about the book before we close. Um, anything I didn't get to? about uh, what's the actual therapeutic action of art, uh, and so I thought maybe I would mention that, mm-hmm. um, uh, that uh, what happens with trauma is uh, uh, there's a, a sense of chaos often, and a kind of internal chaos, and uh, what one is able to do through, through putting that into that kind of unformulated experience into some shape and form and externalizing it into a work of art, which then uh, sort of organizes the chaos and it allows a person to do this by giving it some distance. It, it becomes uh, more manageable and to make sense of it and give it meaning. And of course, as I said before, you know, creates the witnesses both for the artist uh, bearing witness to what he or she has experienced, uh, but then also having others witness it, and that that allows for the connection with others, uh, which is uh, usually uh, is something that's very much of an issue with those who've been traumatized. It's an empowering experience that brings self-esteem. So that's Sort of what I, I wanted to, to talk about what you know what the therapeutic action of art is. Yes, it's, it's very it's very very important, and I'm glad that you were able to bring it up. And uh, and 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 yes, that it's, that that again, it, it ends it on a kind of a nice note of the relationship to art, and the relationship is what kind of is helpful in uh, in healing. Yes. Uh, also, you know, one last thing is that I just want to thank you very much uh, for giving me the opportunity to, to talk about my book. Oh, Even oh. though talking is not easy for me, uh, I'm really glad to have the opportunity. Oh, thank you. Uh, uh, of course, uh, yes, thank you. And uh, and hopefully we'll have you on next time when uh, your next book comes out. <laughs> <laughs> not so fast. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I want to go back into some painting now. We'll have your pa- we'll have your paintings on the podcast. <laughs> we've, been, we've, we've been speaking with Dr. Sophia Richmond, the author of Mended by the Muse: uh, Creative Transformations of Trauma. This has been Christopher Bandini for New Books in Psychoanalysis. Mm-hmm.